Hello, welcome to the Do Lectures podcast with me, Gav Thompson. Today, in episode five of season two of Being Amazing Despite, we talk to Casper Craven. Casper has written a couple of books, the first, Where the Magic Happens, the second, Be More Human. Casper is amazingness. Well, he'll tell you about his amazingness. He'll also tell you about his despite. When I asked him, he said, well, I've done some amazing things despite myself. So he's got some good stories to tell. Perhaps the story he's most well known for is the story about the time when he decided to pack it all in, buy a little sailing boat, put his wife on the sailing boat, who hated sailing and got very seasick, and his nine-year-old, seven-year-old and two-year-old kids on the boat and sail around the world. So I'll let Casper tell the story. He now helps businesses through coaching and lecturing to be more human rethinking the rules of high-performance teamwork. He's an amazing chap. It's an amazing story. Sit back, grab a coffee, put your feet up, and enjoy Casper Craven being amazing despite. Welcome, Casper. Hello, Gav. It's great to be here with you. Thank you very much for joining me. So, Casper, I was introduced to you by my lovely old Volvo client, Sarah, who I had literally haven't seen for 20 years. So, shout out to Sarah. Thank you. You are famous, if that's the right word, or you're well known for sailing around the world a couple of years ago with your family and your children, of the youngest of whom was two. So, that is definitely something we need to be talking about. But actually, when I was doing my uh, research, I have read both your books. Thank you, Casper. I actually found some of the, the stuff pre the going around the world quite interesting. Also, second time around the world. You've been around the world one time before. We'll come back to that in a second. And also, I found the kind of latter stuff you're now doing. You know, you're a speaker. You have your own sort of business. Also very interesting. It's not to say going around the world with a family is not interesting. But actually, it's, it, it was, there was other stuff which we, I want to talk about. That's good, by the way. That, that's the stuff that I prefer to talk about as well. So that's good. That's a good start, isn't it? Um, and the other thing, again, more to, for my listeners' benefit, is what I normally do is, you know, often get introduced to people. We do a Zoom call for 45 minutes just to check we get on and there's something interesting to talk about. And obviously I ask people in the construct of being amazing despite, obviously the amazingness is normally clear, not always, but the despite bit is obviously where the kind of rub is, the jeopardy is. And when I said to Casper what's your being amazing despite, he came up with a brilliant answer, which was Casper gone? <laughs> I think some, it was something along the lines of being amazing despite fucking up at just about most things that I've done. So, uh, and by the way, it's interesting, but you mentioned about the sailing, by the way, the normal reaction is people think, he sounds like some posh twat who's been on a boat for two years. What, what interesting things are there around that? And actually, that's why I share my fuck-ups, because they're far more interesting than anything else, I think. You sort of summarised it as being amazing despite myself, which I thought was a, that sums it up, right? Because we're all, we all fuck up left, right and centre, some more than others. And to acknowledge that, you're right, in some ways the amazing bit of going around the world with your kids is amazing, but it's not as amazing as how you got to it and kind of some of the stuff you learned doing it. So why don't we kind of go back to the period that led to you deciding to sail around the world with your family? Okay, so um, I will paint you a picture of my life back in uh, 2009. So I was uh, running a small business, and we had about 10 people in the business, turning over about 400 grand, losing money, trying to invest in lots of different things. 
working 16, 18 hours a day. What was it? So what was the business? We were back then. Actually, we were we started off as a consultancy helping people build online social networks, and we basically evolved into the data analytics space helping people analyze the data and the patterns around their websites by looking at which companies were visiting them. So basically, life was pretty rubbish. The uh, working uh, ridiculous hours, didn't see my wife, didn't see my kids. Divorce was not a million miles away. Yeah, it was like arguments about money and bed deaths and like all sorts of horrible things, right? That was kind of a crunch point where I just said, okay, let's look fundamentally and how we, how we can rewrite our lives in a different way that's much more exciting than where we are right now. And I guess in, up until then, I've been following what I would call as the traditional routes, trained as a chartered accountant, investment banker, left there in my early 30s to go and set up my own business. And uh, at age of 37, it wasn't working. So uh, I had to hit the reset button, basically. I went through a similar period of my life which ended with us, with me getting divorced, actually. Let's just unpick that a bit. How do you, when you're on that track, you know, you're working too hard, you're never seeing your wife and family, divorce coming down the track, how did you manage to to kind of put the handbrake on and rechart your course? As a fundamental thing. It was like, what I, I realised that what I was doing wasn't working. I realised that I wasn't listening to actually what was going on. And, you know, you have the same thing that suddenly appears in all parts of your life. And I suddenly realized that in my business, I wasn't listening to what my business partner was telling me, what our clients were telling us. And same thing at home, I wasn't listening to what my wife was saying. So the most important bit for me was try and create some stability at home because it was one of those horrible things. You'd like have an argument in the morning, you go to work, it's like fills your head all day long. You're not doing very good work. You come back home and you rinse, repeat and do the same thing again. So it's like, hang on, I just need to like put the handbrake on this. And so I actually thought, well, let's rebuild things at home. And it basically started with asking my wife what was really important to her. And the lens I always use is this thing called past, present, future. So, you know, where do you spend most of your time focused? Is it the past, is it the present, or is it the future? And rather than looking in the present or in the past saying, you did this or you should have done this, it was let's look at what else we can do and starting to paint a picture of the future. And so it started with me asking my wife, Nicola, what are the things that are really important to you that you want to do in the future? Forget where we are right now. And it was the conversation around that, around starting to co-create a more exciting story of the future that was the turning point for us. And we you know, found things that we shared in common which back then basically was three holidays. That was what we shared in common. We wanted to go um, diving on the Great Barrier Reef. We wanted to go see elephants in Africa and get a carnival in Brazil. So that, yeah, we, we really were hanging on by a thread. So we then just started to like just imagine, okay, what would be an amazing way to go and have holidays in those places? And we'd sit down at the weekend, get a bottle of wine, and just like imagine and start sketching out the future. Because when the present is so shit, it's like, well, hang on, it's, it's a bit more exciting to look into the future. There's something a bit more optimistic there. That was basically what started to turn the corner, was to paint a more optimistic, more exciting story of the future, but by listening to what was important to her and her listening to what was important to me. Same process I used to turn the business around as well, by the way. I think from memory from your book, you, at one point when you did that first, and it's quite a good exercise, listeners, you, with your partner, you get to write down in percentage terms how much of your current day activity mind is occupied by the past the present and the future. Weren't you 10% present, 90% future? 
Exactly right. So the question I ask is, you know, over 100% of your time and energy, where do you spend most of it focused? And so when I first answered it, I realized I'm like 0% on the past. It's like, and Nicholas says, why do you never remember what happened, to me, happened last week? And it's like, I don't know, it's gone. About 10% on the present, about 90% in the future. Whereas Nicholas, by contrast, hers is about 50% in the past. I think it's 30% in the present and 20% in the future. So you just look at that. Every conversation, I'm forward-looking, she's past-looking. It's like, well, hang on a second. Let's just recalibrate and just think about what are we talking about here? And we all have these unconscious filters. So every team that I work in, one of the first questions, tell me your numbers. And then we just know where we're both coming from. And you can hear it in people's language. Someone starts to tell a story. They look backwards or they look forwards, right? And I'm not casting any sort of views on what the right thing is. I mean, I'm sure there's all sorts of um, mindfulness people who talk about, you know, be much more present. Eckhart Tolle would be advocating quite a high present. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I think it's there is no right or wrong. You just need to acknowledge where your partner is or your team are and adapt accordingly. Do you, just to jump to now, when you do that exercise with yourself now, where are you now? Yeah, good question. So look, I have trained myself, because I'm now, I'm now aware of this, I've trained myself to be a little bit more conscious of the past, because I realise there's some helpful things in there, right? There's a reason we have a subject called history, isn't it? So um, I would say now about 10% on the past, I would say probably about 30% on the present and about 60% on the future. So I've learned to meditate and do you know, various stuff like that. And actually, that feels a bit healthier for me now. So, And I suppose somebody like you who's got 10% present, 90% future, when things like your business and your marriage start going to shit, in a way it kind of hits you much more because your future is kind of crumbling in front of your eyes, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, that focuses the mind, right? I mean, here's the thing. So when we came up with our story of the future, we literally crafted it out on a piece of paper, stuck it on the wall, and it was powerful and it was simple and it was emotional. Again, exactly the same thing that we did to turn the business around to, same techniques. And... You know, once I started focusing on that, the fear of the story not happening became greater than the fear of facing the pain barriers that stood in front of us. And what I would say is that story was literally the thing that pulled us into the future because we got so clear on it, talked about it so much, made it omnipresent in our world. Yeah, it kind of forced the future onto us, basically. The funny thing is, just explain to the listeners your sailing history up to this point so the point you did this sort of vision of the future which in essence was we're going to sail around the world right so tell everyone what your sailing history was and what Nicholas's sailing history was because they're quite different <laughs> yeah so look, I've grown up around the water all my life I used to run a commercial fishing boat in Devon so I always sailed and but also in um, 2000 I, I sailed around the world on the BT Challenge, the same the same race which one of your previous guests, Manly. Um, the lovely Manly Hopkinson, yeah. And uh, a great, great guy, Manly, a lot of time for him. So I had done a reasonable amount of sailing and I'd done round Britain and Ireland races and they had all my sailing qualifications. Nicola, by contrast, she'd been on a boat twice. She'd been seasick both times. So she was definitely not a water person. But it was, you know, when we co-created the story, it was her sense of adventure that was the thing that captivated her and, you know, sat behind her reason why for doing this. Did any of your friends, because I'd say this if I was one of your friends at the time, with a slightly cynical hat on go, ah, okay, I see, Casper, your (laughs) shared vision is to do the thing you're very passionate about, to sail around the world with your wife who 
hates it and is, gets seasick. You know, that's quite a good piece of negotiation, isn't it, on your part? The two normal reactions when people hear that part of the story is like, one, you're insane to take your kids around the world. And two, how on earth did you convince Nicola to do that? And I always you know, jokingly say, you know, the moment she went to bed, I had this tape which would play. It's like, I want to sail around the world. I want to sail around the world. Joking aside, it was actually her idea. So as we're talking about the holidays and so on, she, because we'd done this deep listening exercise, talking to about each other, what was important to each other. She was the one who actually turned around and said, why don't we get a boat and go sailing? And, you know, initially she suggested around the Mediterranean. It was me who extended that and said, well, fuck it. Why don't we just go around the world? If I'd suggested it, then uh, it would never have got off the ground. And, I mean, you mentioned it just then, and it's the first thing that I, I thought. And actually, when I was reading, you were written up in the Daily Mail a couple of years ago. I'm sure you've seen some of the comments underneath. And there's two unifying comments. We'll come back to one in a second. But one of them was, what a kind of irresponsible dick. Takes a nine, seven, a two-year-old around the world in a sailing dinghy. How did you deal with that? Because you said last time when we spoke, that was the prevailing attitude of everyone. The background to this is that I'm a chartered accountant by background. Nicola was a barrister. Neither of us are in the habit of being cavalier, of throwing caution to the wind. And although from the outside looking in, it looks like we were utterly insane through caution to the wind. Here's the reality. We had five years to prepare. And we went into an insane amount of detail and preparation, which you'd never know unless you'd read the book and got inside the story. So, for example, medical concerns was a big issue. So we both trained to become ship's doctors, which is the most extensive training you can get outside of becoming a doctor or a nurse. We had you know, thousands of pounds worth of medical equipment. Wherever we were in the world, we always knew exactly where there was a doctor. There was another boat that was sailing company bus with us that had casualty room surgeon from Portugal. So I'm always looking at how do we minimize the risk in terms of this we have five years preparing and ingraining rituals and habits in terms of how do we manage the kids on the boat the first thing we did once we came up with with our big bold goal doing the sailing was to challenge ourselves and say what is every single reason under the sun why we should not do this and then we flipped it around and that then just became our to-do list those are the things we have to work through and to get confidence on once you realize actually that you go through the risks and you evaluate the risks you have a higher risk of your kids being killed driving around the m25 than you do sailing around the world yeah you look at every single risk and you evaluate it so one of my little mantras in life, which I bang on to my family and my kids about, is never do something important in your life or never make an important decision in your life unless someone whose opinion you really value totally disagrees with you, right? And it's one of those things I've carried around for years, and I really like it because it means, A, you're being challenged by people that care about you. Secondly, it probably means you're taking the path less travelled, which, let's be honest, leads to more interesting life. And thirdly, it means if you do finally do it, it means you've really thought it through and you've had to justify it. So it's quite a nice little mantra, I think. However, this is the very extreme version of that. I mean, did you have anyone really close to you, like you know, your parents going, dude, you really, this is just not, you're nuts? Did we have anyone who didn't say we were nuts is probably the better way to put it. Because from the outside in, it looks insane. The interesting thing is, one of the first things we did, we put ourselves into the community of sort of long distance blue water sailors, who the people who've done this and you know in that community you don't feel quite so uh, crazy because people there have the answers and the knowledge and the experience you know one of my mantras which ray dalio um, basically he puts it far more elegantly than me so what he says is you know everything turned in his life when he went around from saying i'm right to how do i know i'm right 
and every single thing that he was looking at it, have it critically challenged by people who knew more than he did, credible people who knew more than he did, and sort of say, okay, how do I think about this? And so that was the approach that Nicola and I took. Let's just kick this from every single angle. Because like, fundamentally, you know, three kids, you don't want to kill them. So it's, you know, you want to... So let's go back to, you, you've got your shared vision. I think you stick it up on the wall. How did you get the kids involved in the vision? So, yeah, so right from the get-go. So we, had, we only had two when we had the idea. And they were aged four and two. What we always knew is that... If we suddenly got to 1st of August 2014, which was our planned departure date, which was on, on the vision on the wall, and we suddenly turned around to the kids and say, right, kids, we're off on a boat tomorrow, they would have like, whoa, what, what's going on? So therefore, we knew it was imperative to have them involved right from day one. And so we started to tell them stories about people who'd been at sea, got them to start imagining it, got them to start drawing pictures and, you know, why would this be exciting to you to start to uncover their reasons why? So we got these lovely pictures from when the kids were very young of my daughter, Bluebell. You know, she wanted to go swimming with dolphins, Columbus, my son. He wanted to go and, like, catch fish and go and see the natural world. So we started just engaging their imaginations. And through the process of developing all the skills with the whole family, then we would go on these sort of one to two weeks sort of sailing holidays around the Greek islands and just get everybody familiar with the whole thing. I met so many people who go sailing and they have one bad experience and it's like get seasick, never going on a boat again. I knew if we had any of those, it would scupper the whole plans. So literally that was really sort of gentle build up period over those five years, getting everyone involved, getting everyone engaged. And uh, it just became part of our narrative. So um, yeah, it just became embedded. So the thing I do understand, and it's clear from reading the book, is the journey when you and Nicola decide we're going to build this shared vision together. We're going to work for five years, which is a long time. And I kind of get that that would have helped fix your marriage, helped nourish your marriage. And, and from a family side of the equation, totally understand that. The thing that I kind of find amazing and could probably be a podcast in itself is the journey from you basically running a shitty failing business with your business partner, Ed, saying you're a freaking nightmare, through to... You know, five years later, because the big barrier to what you'd the vision was money, right? A hell of an expensive thing to take two years out of earning money and buy an expensive yacht and all that good stuff. So that's the bit where you go, right, we're going to sell around the world. It's going to cost hundreds of thousands of pounds and we're going to make the money in the next five years and become really successful to enable that. How did that actually happen? That sounds like a an amazing piece of sort of, you know, visualization that then worked. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued to know how you did it. Yeah. So there's a lot there. The, um, so the first thing was, yeah, coming up with the story for the business and right from the get go, I told my business partner, Ed, this is what I want to go and do five years down the track. So we've got time to go and do stuff. Candidly for the first two years, we paid lip service to the plan and carried on doing what we were doing before, but thinking we were changing things. We were tinkering. We weren't really changing stuff. And the power of having, and by the way, my, my mantra had always been in the business. I'm going to build a business up and I'm going to sell it in five years time. And whatever point I was, it was always still five years away. It just kept moving away from me. <laughs> and the key thing was putting that line in the sand, 1st of August, 2014, so when we got to um, 2011 and the numbers haven't fundamentally changed, it's like, okay, now 
the pressure is on me because that deadline is getting closer. So I need to go and do something different. That was the point when I really started my learning and growth journey and started really immersing myself in conferences, in learning, the humility to find people who knew more than I did. And, you know, you mentioned that my business partner, because the, the particular story you're referencing there is I went to this conference in the States, came back, as you only can after going to a US conference. So I was like, yay, I've got all the answers. Let's come and charge ahead and do all this stuff. And just started charging through the business until Ed basically took me to one side. Caspi, you're being a dick. Everyone's going to leave if you carry on doing that. And it was like, oh, okay. So actually, my leadership skills aren't quite what I thought. And so then I had to go and find a coach, which was, you know, a humbling experience to admit you don't know what you're doing and you haven't got the answers. And that was the point. It's like, okay, so this is how we now need to start thinking about building a team. And so that was the turning point, basically realizing that I couldn't do this on my own. It would have been too ego driven. I wasn't using the talents of the people around me and we weren't in step. That was the start of the real transformation was three years in. But it came from setting the deadline, from that deadline getting closer and closer. And then it's like, okay, now I've got to really listen and pay attention. And in your mind, was there a direct link between if I don't sort the business out, we can't do this family vision that we've now been talking about for two or three years? Presumably it was a direct link. Without the money, you couldn't afford to do it. And the biggest leverage on that was I had made a commitment to my kids that I was going to go and do this. Turn around and say, I'm sorry, kids. I've been shit. I haven't been able to get the money together. That's not going to go down very well. That was not a conversation I was going to have. So therefore, you know, the the classic thing, you either find a way or you make a way, right? And I guess, you know, by putting it on the wall with Nicola and with the kids, I'd made a rod for my own back. I'd burnt the boats to use the metaphors and all that sort of stuff. And it was, let's find a way now. And was there there a moment when you realized it was all going to come together, like you, the business was turning the corner, you'd, you know, what was the moment where you're right, this is actually on, we can afford it, we're going to press the eject button? I'm not sure I could actually point a specific time. I mean, in our final three years, we turned that business around and we actually ended up selling that for seven figures whilst we were actually mid-ocean. So whilst we were actually sailing across the Pacific. So that one only actually resolved itself then. But we actually built two other businesses in the same period. So one was in property and one was a network of online marketing sites, 500 online marketing sites. Actually, that quite quickly became very cash generative. So that was something that really helped to liberate things. And then the big capital sum came from that, from selling the business. It's amazing. So let's get into the actual yacht event. I mean, again, we haven't got time to do, it was how long was it? Two and a bit years in the end? Two years. Two Two years, years. 35,000 miles, 84 harbours, 26 countries. So when you set off, you had your three kids, youngest was two. It is amazing. Just tell us, you had some problems early on. You you had a back operation just before you left, right? (laughs) Yes, <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, so I, I did the um, the London Marathon in 2012, raised five grand for NSPCC, but also screwed up my back. And I had basically had some really bad sciatica and should have stopped running. Yeah, shortly after that, I bought the boat and couldn't walk. And so the basement doctor and surgeon gave me sort of a choice. He said, you can either have the surgery or you can not. And it's like, well, I'm going to go and do this. So they gave me the surgery and so we headed off. We got, we got a couple of friends to come and join us for the first part, going down across the Bay of Biscay, down towards the Canary Islands, because I couldn't pull on ropes because I just had surgery. Now, again, we just thought about how do we sort of minimise the risk. And actually, for that first bit, we left a two-year-old at home. She only joined us in Portugal just while we were getting the boat settled down. So we had more adults than children at that point. 
But yeah, I mean, like two years, I mean, it's like, goodness me, I mean, just like a complete roller coaster of incredible highs, incredible lows. But fundamentally, I mean, it's, you know, there's linking it back to where we are today and what we've all been experiencing with the coronavirus. We were basically in self-isolation whilst homeschooling for two years, whilst also running involved in three different businesses, whilst navigating the world's oceans. And look, I'm very clear, we made the choice to do that. No one voted for, for what we've got going on right now. But it gave us an incredible set of skills and insights into how do you work together as a team, which is very much what's informed you know, the latest book. Because one of the delightful things about kids is if they're not happy with something, they'll be quite direct. They're bored. They'll walk off. They'll tell you if they're not interested. Whereas in the workplace, people cover all that stuff up. They hide that stuff, right? And you don't always know. So it's a great way to really learn about teamwork, working with kids. We had our challenging moments. We had tantrums. You know, we had all the usual stuff you get with kids. But fundamentally, yeah, we had to figure out stuff together. So. How was it for them? I mean, again, they, you know, you adults, you've got the vision, you know what, you know how much fun it's going to be knocking around various parts of the world. They can't. I mean, I've been on a camper van holiday with my kids when they were pretty similar age, actually. And, you know, after a couple of weeks, we all wanted to kill each other. You know, it was quite hectic. You know, you're on a tiny boat for, you know, weeks on end in horrible sea conditions, you know, and they haven't got the kind of vision. I mean, obviously, they're living much more in the present. How did they deal with it? So, boy, the, the horrible sea conditions, I would say 90% of the time, because of the route we'd chosen, it was quite comfortable. So we were downwind sailing, so therefore the boat is flat most of the time. So not sitting there hanging on, sort of throwing up over the side and stuff like that. So it was, it was relatively pleasant. But the core answer is routine. Kids love routine, right? The easiest passages for us are always the long ones, three-week passages, rather than the one or two or three-day passages, because then you just get into the rhythm of, you know, we all have meal times together, then it's the kids schooling in the morning, and we have lunch together, and then sort of in the in the afternoon, they play games, and do, you know, come up on deck and do whatever the stuff, and evening meals together. So just having a really structured day, but also finding things that engaged each of the kids because, you know, bored kids very quickly become terrorists. And so therefore, we had to engage each child in things that they were most passionate about. Same process I used with, you know, getting the right, the team in the right place at work. It's the strength space work. What do you love doing? Right, let's get you doing more of the stuff that you love doing. So for example, my daughter Bluebell, she was a nine-year-old, she can speak for England. She's like, she's a talker. She'll be incredible in, uh, in sales and going out there in, in, in the world. So we made her our radio operator. And therefore, she's like speaking to the other boats. Columbus, my son, he is super into his fishing and his nature and wildlife. So we put him in charge of the fishing. And we got them involved in the boat jobs and the routines. You know, fundamentally, I come back to this thing, like people only do things for their reasons, not for your reasons. So you've got to tap into each person's world. And yeah, what's the stuff that you love doing? Great. Let's get you doing more. Of that so routines and yeah playing to each person's interest the book is full of amazing stories by the way the book everyone is called where the magic happens and it's a fantastic read but there's two things that stood out for me which when it got a bit hectic one was when you, you all your power went and the other was when your daughter fell over and cut her head which both sounded quite intense just talk us through <laughs> both of those experiences yeah, there's a lot there. So yeah, the power failure one, 500 miles from the nearest piece of land in the middle of the, the South Pacific. Yeah, we lost the power, basically. What caused the power loss was that we had some, end up getting a little bit of water in the diesel tanks. 
and that enables something called diesel bug to grow, which means you get these like sort of black chewing gum like lumps in the fuel, which means the fuel can't flow. And so therefore, no diesel flow, can't run the engines, can't run the generator. So we're out there and we have to uh, figure out what to do. Going back to the preparation, we had the redundancy, the resilience stuff all built in for that. So we had three months worth of food and water on the boat. We had the paper charts. We had the astro navigation stuff. We had battery held GPS. We could hand steer the boat and there's no shipping lanes out there. So you're not about to be run down either. So we could have been out there for months, but basically we hand steered the boat between myself and Nicola and sailed to the next piece of land and yeah, got stuff figured out there. So. And what about when your daughter fell out of her bunk? That was a little bit more hairy. So stormy night off the south coast of Madagascar, heading towards South Africa. We're going through a front thunder, lightning, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, she managed to throw herself off the, the bunk while the kids are playing at the front, cuts her head. Yeah, our medical skills are brought into the fore. We have to basically stitch her head. So we've got advice from our doctor friend who was on a boat uh, was like 50 miles away or something, told us, uh, you know, what we had to do to get it. And it's funny, it's head wounds, right? They always look far worse after at the time. And actually, when you're in the cold light of day, it's like, oh, it's actually, it's, it's not that bad. But it you know, tests your skills and puts you on edge for a little while, for sure. It's an amazing story. So let's come back to the present day, really. So you've done something that was unbelievable. Give us a picture of two things. A, how is sort of family life now? And then secondly, tell us about your new business and your new sort of mission and your new book, Be More Human. Yeah, so family life is, you know, kids are back in school. As everyone who's been through homeschooling will have breathed a sigh of relief when the kids went back to school. We were no different. Having homeschooled for two years, it's no easy gig. So, you know, the kids are all thriving. It's interesting, you know, they still follow the passions and the things that... You know, they picked up and you can see the, the characters developing even more from what they did. I mean, they, 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 they think it's the most normal thing in the world to what we've done. And they don't really like talking about it. It's just like it's just something that's there. We're charging on with taking on uh, more big, bold goals which is the name of, the, of the, the next business. And so, you know, one of the things that since I came back from the sailing four years ago, I've been doing a lot of talking at conferences and events about how do you build high performance teams and lead teams? How do you build resilience teams? And what's really interesting is, you know, I've been sharing uh, some of the stories we've, we've just touched on. And I've been sort of immersing myself in, in learning and just reflecting on what I've learned. And one of the things that I came to, to see is that the model that we have been following for the past few decades has all been about money first, results first, and people are very much the afterthought. And, you know, it was how I was brought into the working world in the 90s. And so the book I've just written, Be More Human, it's all about how do we rethink the rules of high-performance teamwork by fundamentally putting people at the heart of things. One of the core themes running through the book is that we're all building two teams, a home team and a work team. And there's exactly the same set of principles. But when we go to work, we sometimes put this work head on and suddenly it's all about the profit. Whereas actually, no, it's still all about the people. The results follow once you get the people in the right places. So the book basically talks about what I believe, not just from my own experiences, 
but from interviewing um, tons of other people saying, you know, what is it that creates the high performance team? And then that flows into the new venture, Big Bold Goals, which is how do you take on and achieve big, bold goals? And, you know, that's definitely been a theme throughout my life. But we're working with a lot of uh, big companies now saying, okay, what are the strategies? What are the mindsets? How do you build the teams to tackle these big, bold goals? Because the danger is you just set timid goals and you get scared off by all the reasons why you shouldn't go and do that. So one of the things in the book which I found interesting, I just want to talk about a bit about, is values. You advocate, you know, spending quite a lot of time in both family and in business, working out values, agreeing on values. And one of my observations, having been in marketing for 26 years and been a brand strategist for a lot of those years, and have written more kind of corporate values than I kind of care to mention, and have have analysed lots of others, is in my experience, and I I found the values process a little bit of a waste of time because people like me rock up as an external consultant or whatever. I sort of do some quite clever sort of thesaurus word soup play. I come up with a set of values. I'll go and design a nice book. I'll turn it into PowerPoint presentation. I'll stick something on the wall, kind of job done. Yeah, increasingly, I now more in the CMO space, so I sort of see more companies' values firsthand, and they all tend to include the word bold. They all tend to include the word honest. Quite a lot include the word customer. For me, I'm you know slightly cynical about it, but you're very you advocate it very strongly in the book. So why don't why don't we have a little debate about this? Tell me why you think values are more are so important. Let me preface it right. It doesn't really matter what's on the wall. It only matters what's the conversation that you have inside the office. That's the fundamental distinction, right? And like, you know, back in my days working for one of the big four accountancy firms, we did values and there was like 10 things on the wall. I remember I was so bored by it. By the time I got to the end of reading the second value, I couldn't even tell you what the first one was. And I'd be looking at my watch saying, I've got some really important like paint to go and watch dry somewhere. And it's just like, and I was the most disinterested, cynical person that you could imagine. So everything you just identify with that. It's exactly the same principle as the thing about the creating the story with, with my wife and still starting the business. It's all about the conversation that you have. It's not about the words that you choose, although they're important, but it's just facilitating a conversation where people are fully engaged in that. So for me, my philosophy around the values is that when you engage fully and deeply with that, the values are the things that drive your behaviors, your behaviors drive your actions, your actions drive your outcomes. They're that fundamental building block. The problem I see is that most people do the implementation of this badly, which is how I used to do it back in corporate world. You spend half a day on it and then it's put on the wall and you forget about it and come back to it next year. That's never going to stick, right? Because it doesn't mean anything. So therefore, what we did in the business, there was three stages to it to really embed it. One was agreeing what they were, which is the same process that you described. The second thing is saying, getting really specific. What is it that we do when we live these values at our very best? And getting people to really think about that concrete example. Because if I say the word integrity and I ask 10 different people what that means, I'll get 10 different answers, right? So it's creating the shared common language around that. But by far the most important thing for me is the rituals and the habits of how you actually live this inside the business. You know, it's not sticking out on a job review form or, you know, annual review form. 
we in the business used to have like values prizes every week and I'd hand out chocolate bars for people. I'd say, you know what, I saw you do something, this tiny little thing here. And what you're doing is you're creating conversation about the things that you want to see more of. You're not saying I don't want to see that. All you're doing is celebrating good stuff because the organization and the culture then starts to mirror the things that you are praising and talking about and encouraging more of. Exactly the same thing as we did in the family team every morning over breakfast, we'd have values prizes and hand out stickers and be telling the kids, you know, I saw you do this in accordance with the values. And that language doesn't even have to be as corporate as that, but it's just having the conversation, right? How did you, I'm just interested in how you did the values with your kids. I mean, how do you, I mean, I'm being slightly plain devil's advocate. Of course I love values. (laughs) I spent my career trading on values. My point is, I guess a lot of companies do the exercise and go literally tick the box, move on. And actually, it's the implementation and embedding of them that are really important. I'm kind of intrigued to know how you did it with your kids. I mean, that's an int- I've never heard of anyone doing that before. So tell us about that. So look, I'll make a statement here. The single best thing that anyone inside a company can do to make their company culture better is to do values at home. Because you then go and you decorporatize it. Because if you go back to your wife and kids, right, we're going to do the values. And it's like, and you do use corporate language, they'll tell you to fuck off, right? Uh, well, your kids might not. So it's putting it in like a human language. What's a real conversation around this? And so we just did the same process that we did at work, but, you know, languaged it for the kids. We created our values. You'll see in the book where the magic happens, you'll see our painting that we created. We made it fun. And then we just turned it into this really simple ritual. By doing that at home, I got a really clear understanding of how beneficial this was, how this really made a difference. And then once I was inside the process, I really got it then I could take it to work. But there were some really interesting parallels there because I've often stood up in front of teams or companies and gone, right, today, you know, we're all about values. And you, you see lots of people rolling their eyes. And, and similarly with kids, you know, if I sat down with my three kids, you know, 13, 11, 3, and said, right, guys, today we're going to work out our values, they would be rolling their eyes. But as a good dad, as I know you're a good dad, you know, you turn it into a little bit of fun and bring some art in and turn it into a little competition, blah, blah, blah. And by the end of a few hours, we'd have some values and we could work at them and refine them. With corporates, you know, how have you managed to get people engaged in defining the values? I mean, every, every new CMO that joins or every new CEO that joins companies generally goes, let's have a look at the values. <laughs> yeah, of course they do. Like the first thing is getting all those thoughts out on the table, right? You can't influence anybody unless you know what influences them already. Everyone's got their own horror story of how shit values have been when they've experienced it before. So let's get all that stuff out on the table and then let's talk about how we can do this in a way that's more fun and engaging. And you know, it's just like making it lighthearted as well. And one of the companies that helped to implement this, they're like a fast-growing publishing company. You know, it's hundreds of people across three different uh, continents. And they may just create some fun stuff, right? Let's the values oscars every month what are just different ways just to make this engaging because um going back to right where we started the conversation you know every time i've hit problems in my work life and my home life is when i've taken myself too seriously you know there's something about this it's like let's just get real right let's decorporatize this let's just think about what we're actually talking about here what we're trying to do is like just agree how do we behave amongst each other what is good what is not good it's just trying to remember that and just get back to those what i describe as you know that there'd be more human principles right of you know what connects us as humans so can you, again, I'm going to do that really annoying thing, which I do with someone, I guess. I'm going to ask them to summarise a book that is 251 pages in, in, in five minutes. Go. 
So basically, so be more human. Basically, it's a fundamental rethink in terms of how do we build effective, high-performance teams that can help us achieve big, bold goals. There are 20 principles in there, and you can use those principles in your home team. You can use those principles in your work team. There's like what I call the foundational elements. So, you know, it's all about how do you build trust? How do you um, build the values? How do you create that pulse star story together? So that's the first section. The next section, the next six principles, is all about how do you really dial up performance? And there's a lot of thinking there, which pulls in you know, some of the latest thinking around health, mental health, around really embracing uh, learning. How do we sort of get beyond ourselves to embrace better knowledge? And then the final section is all about evolving and resilience and, you know, how do we sort of really stretch our teams? And I guess, you know, if there's a through line, if there's a punchline to the whole humanity thing, it's the fact that we are all a work in progress. As humans, we are all delightfully flawed in our own ways. And the sooner that we can embrace those flaws and be open about those, then I think the faster that we can accelerate as teams. You know, when I go and do my speaking stuff, there are far too many speakers out there who will stand there and tell you how brilliant they are. I stand there and I tell people all the mistakes I've made because they're far more instructive. And, you know, that's what engages people, right? And it's exactly the same in our teams. So that's kind of the the whole thing. There's a thumbprint on the front of the book. So when you're in that situation, your corporate world, just look at your thumb and remind yourself, I'm a human just like everybody else, right? I'm flawed in my own ways. It's that openness, I think, that's going to help to accelerate. It's a very enlightened view. I mean, I had this discussion with Manly the other one of my guests who's sell around the world uh, there's a sort of Phileas Fogg theme to this um, who said the similar thing but I, it's an enlightened boss that stands up and does say I've really stuffed up or I've made a mistake I mean it happens and it's happening more but it's still particularly in PLCs particularly in public businesses it's still very very rare I think I totally agree, which is why in the book I'm calling for a rethink in terms of how we approach this. You know, we developed this fundamental mantra inside the business, which was it doesn't matter who is right, it only matters what is right. Because that ego thing, I mean, I've battled my ego all my life, right? And it's like, yeah, I want to be amazing. I want everyone to think I'm amazing, all that sort of stuff. And actually, once you sort of, you know, make your peace with that, then it allows an awful lot more stuff to come in. And we've all got like a little part of the jigsaw puzzle, but none of us have got the whole jigsaw puzzle. It's only by putting it together with other people that it makes sense. So, but you're, you're right, it's not a common view. I worry that society or culture is moving away from that. And I, I'm thinking of sort of politicians, right? The one thing you'll never get any politician, I mean, look, I've watched a lot of TV at the moment and just the joys of watching lovely Matt Hancock and Boris, they will just never, ever, ever admit they've made a mistake. And you kind of go, politicians are still de facto leaders. And if they are programmed, as it would appear they are, to never admit any kind of mistake or error, it's nuts. And then you see PLC leaders doing the same. And it's like just, it's one of the reasons, you know, my wife's a Kiwi. I love watching the Jacinda and the Kiwi politicians. They admit they've made mistakes and they admit they're learning and they admit they they don't know it. And it's so refreshing, as it is with a leader. You know, Mark Evans, the current CEO of O2, recently publicly said that he'd never kind of left a job of his own volition. Every job he's left was someone else's decision, which is a hell of a brave thing for a CEO of a business like OT to say. It was quite, I, it was when I was just recording my recent podcast about losing your job, it was just very 
timely and honest and refreshing. Now, it's not a PLC, so it probably doesn't really affect, they don't have a share price to affect, they're about to merge with another company. It was probably a good time to say that. But anyway, I just, I do, it worries me that leaders, society are, are moving to this sort of, you know, worried about cancel culture, which is if you say or admit a mistake, you get cancelled. Yeah, it's definitely out there. You know, I think the thing is that when someone is up there saying something, then everybody in their team, everybody in the, around them, everyone knows it's bullshit. Everyone can see it, right? As you say, with the people, the politicians standing up there. And the only person who's not admitting it is that person themselves. I see this already, by the way. The organizations that I believe that are more human, that embrace this real life stuff, are the ones that talent and clients and customers are gravitating towards. So I think that this is, you know, going to be good for business as well. It's not just, you know, you should do this because it's a nice thing. Actually, I think that these are the businesses that are already thriving, the ones that are more purpose-driven and driven by humans. So. You mentioned at the beginning being amazing despite some massive fuck-ups. I'm always intrigued to hear more stories of massive fuck-ups. <laughs> Just give me a couple more. I'll tell you one of the mistakes that I've made, as, as well as being one on the, um, on the speaking circuit, going out there and, and sharing stories. And I think probably for the first few years of doing that, I thought that it was all about me and the stories were about me. And you realise that the stories that we share are never about us. All they are is a vehicle for other people to go on their own journey by providing a safe place through the context of the story. But, you know, I fell into that ego-driven trap again, thinking they, they were about me. And a very wise friend of mine once said the other day, he said, if you listen to my talks, he said, you'll realise I'm never, ever the hero in my story. I think there's something very, very powerful in that, which is why, you know, my talks now are all about, you know, they're not about me they're all about how do you be more human how do you again achieve big bold goals that are important to you rather than saying yay i'm amazing come and look at me because nobody wants to hear any more stories like that i don't think so that's a very enlightened insight what are the unifying sort of commentary on the article in the daily mail a few years ago about you sailing around the world was what a freaking first world problem to be able to raise you know some figure that was in hundreds of thousands of pounds there was definitely a, it was a very British thing, isn't it? I mean, it's, in the US, you'd be like lauded for, wow, amazing. The guy managed to raise all this money to do this amazing thing. Good on him. In good old Britain, Blighty, well, you know, it's any listener, you can go and look it up on the Mail Online. There's some really kind of bitchy commentary about how bloody rich you need to be to have these problems. I want to give you a chance to defend yourself to those horrible trolls on the Mail Online. What do you say to those unenlightened people <laughs> so it's interesting the that i haven't actually read the comments on there because being the daily mail i didn't think they would be particularly kind <laughs> so, i'm going to quote you know, something i heard uh, from simon sinek which is which choir are you preaching to there's a whole bunch of people who will never ever in a million years get what you're coming from you know someone once said to me casper you're not the jackass whisperer you're sort of you're going out there and, and you're, you're sharing what you've found everyone has their views and different perspective on the world and look i totally get that that's probably how it looks from the outside the american culture i mean it's definitely very different over there it's much more oh yeah yeah you go you go do that right there is more of that here in the uk but you know you choose what you listen to and yeah, I'm quite careful about what I listen to. So. Yeah, no, it was interesting. It was interesting. So I've always had this dream. 
and maybe it's a bit like your dream, a tiny bit selfish, right? <laughs> Which is, I love cars and vehicles. And when I was at uni, I had came very close. My dad at the time ran a, a horse charity in India and Pakistan and Egypt and Jordan. It was uh, called the Brook Hospital for Animals. It was, you know, it was an amazing charity. It supported working horses in deprived countries because the horse becomes the source of income for the family. So it's a kind of nice, indirect human charity, which is if the donkey's ill or the horse is ill, the family won't earn any money, they'll starve. If you help the donkey or the horse, then you provide, put food on the table. So it's a lovely thing. And at one point, they had these amazing horse ambulances that were built in the UK, fitted out with all the horse parading gear and air conditioning. And, and they used to get shipped to, in this case, Pakistan. And we got very close, me and a friend of mine at, at uni. As we finished uni, our kind of sort of post-uni kind of gap year, it wasn't gap, it was about three months, was going to be driving two of these horse ambulances from the UK to Pakistan. And we got quite close to doing it. We had all the, yeah, we got halfway, probably two thirds of it down the, the line. And then some stupid country went to war and, you know, we couldn't get insurance. And the vehicles were worth quite a lot of money because of all the kit. So it was irresponsible to take them because of all that stuff. So it kind of got canned. And since then, I've sort of gone, I really want to do a kind of overland trip. Now, it transpires that my two of my kids are now live in South Africa. They're half South African. So you kind of go, great, we should drive to Cape Town, overland, and or drive back. And every time I kind of brought it up, everyone kind of rolls their eyes and go, Gav, that's just a holiday for you that you're forcing your children to go on. Just help me persuade everybody. <laughs> Most people concerned will be listening to this, so it's not really going to help. But I'm just, I'm intrigued to know how you kind of sell that in. Because when I mention people just go, that's just selfish, Gav, you love driving in cars. But I think it would be amazing. It would probably take three or four weeks. Just how do we persuade people that it's the way forward? <laughs> okay, so um, the, the fundamental thing for me, right? People only do things for their reasons, not for your reasons. I've spoken to more people than I care to remember saying, I really want to go sailing, but my wife doesn't. How can I persuade her? You can't is the short answer. So the more interesting route is to ask whoever you want to have involved in doing an adventure, whatever it looks like with you, is tell me about what's interesting for you. Listen to them and find things where you share common ground. It's out of that common ground. The book title, by the way, the first one, Where the Magic Happens, where the magic happens, where you step outside of your comfort zone, but it's also where you do stuff with other people because you can go off and do that adventure on your own, right? But, you know, going watching that amazing sunset on your own, it's not quite the same thing. So for me, where the magic happens is it's the shared experiences. Yeah, everyone's got to be all in on what's the thing that's exciting for them. Sitting down, what's important to you? Here's what's important to me. Where do we cross over? Those are like the Lego bricks of the new story. And it might not be, you know, I would say, you know, you may well have to let go of the story that you have, but the one that you create together will be far more satisfying and far more meaningful because whoever's involved in it will be invested in it. It'll be significantly more likely to happen as well. Right, kids. Izzy, Harry, you heard that from Casper. I'll be, we'll be chatting soon. Start planning your shared vision <laughs> that involves some kind of driving between here and South Africa. And tell us about your future plans, Casper. You've, you've clearly... You know, you found yourself in this amazing position. You've done this brilliant thing. You're now doing something you believe in with big, bold goals and, and being more human. Back to someone that still probably does live in the future. What's the future look like for you? 
So the vision for me basically is to um, become the new global gold standard for how do we build and lead high performance teams. So what Stephen Covey did three decades ago with Seven Habits, I would like this to be the current version of that, the complete rethink of how do we build teams, because the principles in the book, they have never been more relevant than they are right now with the merging of home lives, work lives. And it's this thought about taking the tools and applying them in work and at home, thinking about both teams. So it's redefining how do we work together as teams in order to go and achieve those big, bold goals. I would like to you know that I'm working on the next book and I would like to partner with um, someone in my team. So we now run these um, training programs inside large corporates in terms of getting them to really rethink that. We're developing some technology to go alongside this. And also we're starting to invest in back businesses, again, who are going after big, bold goals. So one of the first we're, we're, we're heavily involved in right now, investing in right now, is around how do we tackle um, COVID and um, kill COVID inside buildings. So, um, yeah, the defining thing being that the goals are big and bold and any organization, whether that's VC-backed companies, whether that's fast growth companies, whether that's big companies who are going after big, bold goals, then we've got a completely different framework for how do you go about building those high performance teams that is fundamentally more human. I mean, talking more human, I loved one of the stories in the in the book about the chap who was worked for you who wanted half a day off to do some charity jewels, jewels yeah. to do some charity work, and you initially kind of poo pooed it. Just, I mean, I love that. It's a really simple story that plays to what you just said. Just tell us about that. Yeah, so we were in the in the turnaround period, two thousand twelve. This was Jules comes and says to me, "Look, there's something that's really important to me." And I'd like to take off their week of um, unpaid leave to go and uh, work with this children's hospice. And I was like, we've got so much stuff on. I can't afford for you to take a day off a week. But I said, look, I can see that it's really important to you. So we will give you half a day rather than a day, but we'll fund it rather than you having to take it as unpaid. The reason for doing that, by the way, is the, this whole thing is about understanding what each person in your team is driven by. And I think if you can help other people meet their needs, then all of your needs will be met as well, right? I think maybe Jim Bowen said that. The, what was really interesting, seeing what happened then, is that he started taking that half-day a week. His commitment levels and energy just went through the roof because he was doing something that was truly meaningful and purposeful for him so there's four and a half days a week we got but more like seven days a week because he was staying later he was doing what he had to do because he was lit up it was just a really simple uh, insight for me in terms of tapping into each person's world and I go further I'd sit down with each of the team and I'd say why are you here why do you care what is it about this business and what we're doing that actually means something to you tell me because if there's something in here that's really specific and really lighting up, I want to get you doing more of that thing. People don't think do things just for the money, right? Money's way down the list. So it's caring for people, right? There's being a good human, isn't it? And it just so happens that's extremely good for business too, because people will become more engaged and do that. But uh, for some reason, we don't do that. The follow-on story from Jules, by the way, is that after we sold the business, he was actually one of the key people the buyer wanted to have on the team. After we sold the business, um, a couple of years afterwards, he actually uh, left and he now runs his own um, charity, uh, which is uh, Children's uh, Hospice. And he was on um, Children in Need a couple of years ago, uh, one of their primetime slots. I mean, he's just like, he's doing stuff that he's put on this planet to do. And, you know, I think helping people to find their thing, I mean, what better thing is there as helping someone else to do that? So. I totally agree. It's amazing. I mean, when when you have, and I've been lucky to have some amazing bosses over the years, 
the ones that sit down and go, look, you know, you're doing really good at your job. You need to do this, this, and this a bit better and stop doing that, that, and that. Great. But actually, let's have a more interesting conversation about what you really want to get out of your role here, your life. You know, how can we help you? How can we enable you? How can we... That's where you just... The level of engagement on the back of those conversations, relationships, means you're going to be so much more efficient at your job because the person who's your leader is really engaged and involved and cares about your development as a human being. And it's, it does sound quite fluffy, but we all know, you know better than I do, that's the key to unlocking teams and the power of the team and the individual. Exactly. I mean, like, I, I was trained as an accountant, right? You were a unit of productive capacity when you come in as an accountant, right? And, you know, carrot and stick. Remember that analogy, right? Here's the carrot and here's the stick. If you don't mean it's like, what a shit, wait a minute. That's not leading people. It, no, no. It's, I mean, look, I think the world needs to catch up with you, Casper. I think that's probably a good place to close. Like most of my guests, I could talk to you all day. I think you have a fascinating sort of take on failure and success. You've done amazing things. I love both of your books. I would urge listeners to go and um, find out more and obviously watch this space. I think we're going to be hearing more from you, Casper. So thank you so much for joining me. Gav, thank you very much for letting me share all my screw-ups on air. It's been, it's been lovely to chat to you. And uh, yeah, I appreciate it. And yeah, well, let's, uh, we'll get you back on again sometime soon. Casper, thank you very much. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. That was Casper Craven. His two books are Where the Magic Happens and Be More Human. It's a crazy, crazy story. Thank you so much for listening through the year. Thank you for supporting me and the Do Lectures in our joint venture of the Do Lectures podcast. I'm recording this at the end of 2020. This is going out on January the 1st, 2021. (sighs) What a year this has been. I'm really not going to miss 2020. Um, I'm sure no no one is. But I'm feeling good about 2021. Ever forwards. Thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate it. Please uh, do leave us a review. Please subscribe. Please feel free to email me with any comments or suggestions. Gav at thedolectures.co.uk This show was produced by George McDonough. And the music was by James Morton. Take care. Happy New Year. And I'll see you very soon. Bye. Thank you.